0: The following is a recording of a panel on reproductive rights in Judaism, which took place on Sunday, May 22, 2022, at Temple Beth Abraham in Nashua, New Hampshire. Three rabbis participated on the panel, Rabbi Robin Nafshi of Temple Beth Jacob in Concord, New Hampshire, Rabbi Leora Kling Perkins of Temple Emuna in Lexington, Massachusetts, and me, Rabbi John Spira Savet of Temple Beth Abraham. The program was organized and moderated by Cheryl Rich Kern, member at Beth Abraham. The live recording has been lightly edited and no substance from any of the presenters has been altered.
1: Before we start this program I just I want, uh, on reproductive rights, I just wanna say that, uh, that the goal of this is not to tell anyone how to think or what to think. The idea is to um, give you some language within a Jewish framework that helps you articulate your ideas and helps you formulate opinions and decide how to act. So we have three rabbis here and I'm gonna introduce them and tell you what they're each gonna talk about. Right to my left is Rabbi Leora Kling Perkins. She has been with Temple Emuna in Lexington, Massachusetts as associate rabbi since 2019. And she is going to look at what Jewish law says about the bodies of people who are pregnant, and what Jewish law says about the status of a fetus. And then in the middle, we have Rabbi Robin Nafshi. She has been with Temple Beth Jacob in Concord, New Hampshire, since 2010. And she's going to look at how rabbis advise, counsel, and support people who are considering terminating a pregnancy or wrestling with making choices about that. And then all the way to the left is our own Rabbi John Sparosevet. He's been with us since 2008, and he's gonna lead a discussion about what kind of options we have for engaging in public policy around abortion. So I think I'm gonna start with you, Rabbi Kling Perkins, and let you have the microphone. And also I should say for the people on Zoom, I'm going to take your questions on chat. So the uh,
2: the the audio is off. Okay. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Can everyone are- hear me? Bring your mic closer. Okay. There we go. All good? Okay. Thank you so much to Cheryl and to John for inviting me to be here. This is such an important issue and i'm just so grateful to have this opportunity i also just want to start by noting that this topic raises a lot of emotions and is really personal for people i'm sure that there are people here in in the room or on the zoom who have struggled with infertility who have experienced miscarriage who have had perhaps stillbirths people who have had abortions for either unwanted pregnancies or for wanted ones. And so I just want to make- that this is a really personal personal topic for people even though i'm being asked to talk about what jewish law has to say and that it's personal uh for me too i've been pregnant myself i'm very grateful to have a healthy strong amazing adorable one-year-old daughter and so i'm not so far away from the experience of having been pregnant and i'm so attuned to the fact that i was really lucky that everything went well for me that i was healthy that she's healthy but It could have easily not been that way. So, let's get into our topic. I was asked to talk about reproductive rights from a halakhic perspective. And I want to just point out, before I start getting into the issue, that actually Jewish law has a very different framework for this conversation than than our American context. And we're very used to thinking about talking about this topic in terms of rights. Who has rights? What are the rights of a person who's pregnant? What are the rights, perhaps, of a fetus? And that's not really the question that Jewish law asks. Jewish law and Jewish tradition talks a lot about responsibilities. What are the responsibilities that we have to each other? What are the responsibilities that we might have towards a fetus? It's just a different conversation, and I think it's important for us to notice and acknowledge that. In bringing this up so let's let, let's let's talk what does jewish law have to say and by the way when we talk about jewish tradition perhaps as a voice here i think we all know that jews tend to disagree and by the way i actually think it's really important to go not just to legal sources but also to sources that i would call a so jewish halacha that's jewish law but there's also agada that's story, that's anecdote. And when we look at a source like the Talmud, for example, we have a mixture of the two. We have law and we have story. They don't always seem to align. And I think it's really important to see that the story also can help inform our understanding of this topic. So I actually want to start a little bit with some sources that have to do with contraception. Um, And some of us may be aware that there is a mitzvah to procreate. One of the first mitzvot in the Bible, God tells the first human beings, pru or vu, go ahead and make more humans. And there's a discussion about this commandment in the Talmud. And the Talmud says, you know, that commandment is only incumbent upon men. That's a little weird, because actually, you know, without female-bodied people, we don't really know how to make more people, but also we know that the person who's pregnant really does a whole lot of the work of gestating and creating a new human being. So what is this statement about? And I think it's really telling what the answer is of the Talmud to the explanation for this statement. Why is the mitzvah to procreate incumbent upon men and not women? Well, God wouldn't command women to do something, God wouldn't command anybody to do something as dangerous as pregnancy. That has to be something that we sign up for, that's not being imposed upon us. And so already when we have the conversation about the obligation to procreate, the idea that that wouldn't be imposed upon somebody, that the dangers of pregnancy would not be imposed on someone is already there in the Talmud. So when it comes to contraception, really across the board, Jewish sources are comfortable with contraception for women. So you may find sources that say, oh, well, you can't do this thing that the man would have to do, but a woman can do these other things. I don't know if anyone here has watched Shtisel. Anyone? Okay, so some of us may have watched Shtisel about the, Haredi, right, the ultra-Orthodox com- or the ultra-Orthodox community. And in Stiesel there's actually a character who has an IUD. She has an IUD because she knows that she has a medical issue where she can't safely have a baby. And so the solution in that community is that the the contraception used should be on the woman. And of course, if you look at other Jewish other Jewish communities, you're gonna see a wider range of what people are comfortable with. But you know, really across the board, there's a comfort with women taking measures to prevent becoming pregnant. So so that's about contraception, but of course, I think we know when we talk about the question of reproductive issues, we're also asking about not just contraception, but about abortion. Um, and so there is a key text from the Bible, specifically from Exodus chapter 21 should men brawl and collide with a pregnant woman and a miscarriage results, but no other damage ensues, the one responsible shall be fined according to what the woman's husband imposes upon him, the payment to be based on reckoning. Okay, so clearly there's a little bit of a patriarchal context here, but the point is that the penalty for killing a person is death. And the penalty for causing a miscarriage is a fine. So as horrible as the loss of a fetus may be, that loss is different from the loss of a human being. And the penalty for causing that loss is different from the penalty for causing the loss. of. So in the eyes of this verse, a fetus is not a person. Uh, That doesn't mean that the author of the text thinks that causing the termination of a pregnancy is something that can be done you know, in any circumstance, but it does mean that it's not the same as murder. And that's really important because that's the starting point for most conversations about ending a pregnancy. And the idea here is that full personhood does not begin at conception. In Judaism, full personhood begins at birth. So what are the implications of that? Well, the implications of that are that most authorities would say that if a pregnant person's life is in danger, there's not just a permission, but an obligation to abort the fetus, to abort a potential human being in favor of the life of a living human being. And that means that most, many Jewish authorities, I should say, probably most, will consider the impact of a pregnancy on a person's mental health and well-being sometimes their quality of life as well, as, as a legitimate reason to think about terminating a pregnancy. And so in Judaism, the discussion about reproductive rights is not about whether to allow termination of a pregnancy, it's about when. And there's actually a distinction in many Jewish texts, in many rabbinic texts, between has 40 days passed? Before 40 days, an embryo really at that point is understood to be really not something that's significant enough to take into account when we're discussing, you know, oh, is there a good reason or not, right? It's just water. And afterwards, it would be considered to be a part of the person's body, right? A limb of a body. And so I'm going to move from here to answering another question that Cheryl asked me to talk about, which is if a fetus isn't a baby, what about, pregnancy loss, right? Many people who experience pregnancy loss feel like they lost a baby. And I actually think it's broadly just important to say many people who are pregnant feel like they're pregnant with a baby. They talk about the baby. If you go online and you look at you know what to expect or the bump, you go to these websites, they're gonna tell you what is your baby doing right now when you're pregnant. And if you talk to a doctor, they're gonna talk to you about what is your baby. and that baby is the baby that people hope they will have, right? They experience it and think about it as a baby. And I think it's really important, Robin's gonna talk more about this, but it's important to acknowledge that. So, you know, in the conservative movement, which I, I have the most knowledge about that because I am a conservative rabbi and trained in the conservative movement. We have a response on this topic by Rabbi Stephanie Dickstein. And she's talking about pregnancy loss particularly stillbirth. And she explains that, that actually we can give people a choice here, right? There are some times when actually it's affirming and comforting to have the opportunity to mourn the loss of a potential child as one might mourn the loss of a child. And for other people, it actually might be really helpful to think of this as a potential child and not a child and it may be really helpful for people who maybe have had repeated pregnancy loss to not mourn that loss in the same way that they would mourn a child. And so there's actually room in our tradition for some discretion here on, on, the, part of, on the part of the family. There's a lot more to talk about, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn now to Robin to share, to share what you'd like to talk about. And we'll have time for questions afterwards as well. Thank you
3: very much. And like Leora, I thank you all for inviting me and including me, especially because I'm not a conservative rabbi. So I, I left, I, when we were discussing how we were going to talk about this, I said, uh, well, you guys get to talk halakha because you're from a halakhic movement, and I'm not, so I don't have to. But all that being said, I speak on it, I teach on it, and particularly in the pastoral role. I mean, a pastoral counselor's role is not a psychological counselor, we're not therapists. Our primary responsibility is to listen, to hear, and to walk with people where they are, to literally or figuratively hold their hands and to be with them at some of the most difficult times of their lives. I have had, unfortunately, occasions to All the way from, actually, I remember somebody who was a dear, dear friend of mine. This was before I was a rabbi, but I was en route. And she and her husband struggled with infertility for years and years and years. And she finally became pregnant and discovered that she was having triplets. Exactly and she and her husband and quite frankly in in this realm you know this this should be the state should not be involved at all this should be a conversation among a pregnant person that person's partner that person's spiritual leader that person's physician or other medical advisor that's who should be making this decision and so her spiritual advisor at the me at the time was me the rabbi wannabe and we sat together for a very very long time because she wanted she and her husband ultimately made the decision that Triplets were going to be not just a, like, oh my gosh, how do we deal with triplets? You're immediately outnumbered as parents, and that's often a challenge. But the the emotion, the mental strain and drain on her was overwhelming. So we talked about it, and even as a rabbi wannabe, I was familiar enough with Jewish law, which didn't really matter to her that much. But she found it very helpful as an understanding that her well-being, emotional as well as physical, I would say even financial, must be taken into consideration and, and are paramount in her making the decision. And that she should exercise as well bodily autonomy. That that is, you know, a little bit more. I think what Rabbi Sfeir is going to talk about with rights and, but m- most definitely, and and that's a very large part. I must say of the reform movement is to recognize the not just the bodily autonomy, but the right of a woman to make decisions for herself and not to have things imposed on her. And so my friend ultimately decided, in speaking with her doctor, to abort one of them. And she has very healthy twin sons who just recently graduated from college. Wonderful, wonderful young men. But I know it's something that... uh, weighed on her so much, and it was not at all an easy decision. She was not medically compromised in any way. There was none of the fetus fell into the category of what we call a rodef, a chaser. that would be uh, a, a situation where they were chasing after you, your, the body in a negative way and would cause harm, potential death to the to the pregnant person. And there is where, as we are said, there we are obligated obligated to terminate the pregnancy where the where the woman or the pregnant person's life is is an actual life and the other is a potential. So that was my first ex- experience and since then I've had a number of different situations especially with people who have been very 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 challenged in becoming pregnant then becoming pregnant and there being something wrong and asking that very same question what do I do and always reminding them of their their well-being comes first and foremost. I have had situations where there was particularly a very young couple who were casually dating and not ready for any long-term commitment, not ready for anything, and she got pregnant. And they came to me and said, Please tell me what our tradition says about terminating a pregnancy. You know, she said, I'm not out of college. This will completely uh, disrupt my life. I will not be able to do what I'm hoping to do. In, in my life, and, and I said, you know, that your mental health and your well, mental well-being needs to be considered just as much as your physical health and well-being, and they then chose, they're no longer together, they, they knew they weren't going to stay together, but they, she did include him in the decision-making, and again, they, they chose to terminate. From my perspective, it's, I find it very affirming that I come from a religious tradition, that allows me to speak this way with people, and it doesn't matter often that our tradition says that there, the pain on the on the part of the person who is pregnant at the thought of terminating a pregnancy, even when it's very very early, it may be before the 40 days. It it may be someone who recognizes that yes, this is an embryonic sac more than anything, and yet. We all know people who struggle uh, to become pregnant. We know the people who have had stillborn. We know people who've had infants die, that they're, they're perhaps born premature and, and they don't survive. And so that is so much a part I have found of the, think, the thought process is that, you know, I got pregnant easily or i got pregnant when i didn't want to be and all those people out there who are trying to and are not able to and so sometimes it really helps to ritualize i mean we're a very good very very good religion at ritualizing things and making them up if we need to and i don't say that in a i don't say that to be silly because actually i think a lot of what we do as rabbis, is to help create rituals where they may not exist. This is often a time where a pregnant person, either before making a decision or after going through the termination of pregnancy, will want to go to a mikvah, where the mikvah feels very much like it is healing and cleansing, but it's also recognizing the transition that the body has gone through a transition. The life, the pregnant person's own life, uh, as well. You know, as it, like you said, it's, a, it's you know you think of it as the baby, even if it really is an embryonic sac. That's maybe what you're still thinking of it, and recognizing the the transition that happened there. And so, being able to, and and we are very blessed being so close to Mayim Chaim in Newton, Massachusetts, because uh, that's what they encourage. Yes, come for Nida, come for uh, conversion, but Come for a ritual that you need, that hopefully can help bring healing um, and transformation. And so, uh, that is often something I will offer to. If there, if that doesn't feel right for them, sometimes there's an opportunity to. For an abortion, I I would discourage unless somebody really, really wanted it. I would discourage saying kaddish or lighting a yardside, you know, a candle or something like that, because you're really then elevating the fetus to the status of life and so i often suggest something shy of that you know a blessing of some sort a you know especially a blessing about one's body and being grateful for one's ability um to become pregnant to have that blessing and then also to recognize the piece of it that's about choice and being being able again to be blessed with the opportunity to bring children into the world when it makes the most sense for that person, not at a time that would be emotionally, physically, financially or otherwise burdensome, especially because we know it often becomes it's put out on the kit and as somebody who is not mentally healthy and stable to go through the pregnancy with they if they are forced to or they or they do unfortunately the the child often suffers and is not treated as one would hope so those are a little bit of insights into what goes on from a pastoral perspective i will also talk one last one as leora brought up there was one family that i that struggled with pregnancy and again she got pregnant with and twins and they were extreme preemies they were 1.7 and 1.9 pounds when they were born and the one who was 1.9 pounds did not live beyond a few hours and they, I had done her conversion I did, did their marriage so it's not a surprise that she called me again and we um I came to the hospital, and she she asked if we could do a mitsvah over the the son who was living. And I can tell you right now, he's preparing for to become a bar mitzvah next year, and he's a wonderful, wonderful again, a wonderful young man who lives down in New Jersey. And then we move from there to some kind of a ritual again or rite for burial of the one who had died. And it wasn't a full funeral, but it was something that felt right there because he had lived for a very short period of time. We did do Kaddish, and it provided some wonderful closure for that family. And she had been told she would never get pregnant again and she shouldn't try that, um, but you know, her daughter is 11, so <laughs> she's she was able to, and that's one of the beautiful parts of the story. But I think for all of us, you know, being that, that compassionate presence with people, hearing where they are, hearing what matters to them, and then being able to guide them through both our tradition as well as what, what it is that their needs are. I mean, that's really what our role is as a pastoral person, is to hear what the needs are and, and guide a person through that. So, As I said before, thank you so much for including me. Yeah.
0: Thank you again all and so appreciate Cheryl working for months really to put together this Discussion and and to have two wonderful colleagues to sit with. Such a treat to have this many rabbis in one place in New Hampshire. Robin, who I have known forever, and Leora, a newer colleague, but also someone from a synagogue down the road at Temple Emunah that is really one of the places that, that I and we often turn when we are looking for some guidance as a, a synagogue on all kinds of different things. I want to, I think that what I have to say might be particularly pertinent to people who are in New Hampshire. I, I know there are a lot of folks here from Massachusetts participating, and I, I hope some of this will be useful, both because New Hampshire is a, a purple state where issues around reproductive rights are still very much in play. Our our legislature goes back and forth in terms of the majority. Our governor is uh, states that he is pro-choice and has uh, signed some restrictions on abortion access into law and has said he wouldn't others. So this is very much in play and we are so much closer to our representatives here than we are to influencing the Supreme Court or or the national legislature. Uh, But maybe there'll be something that's useful for, for people wherever you are. And I'm trying to keep in mind something which I, I talked about here yesterday, which is a distinction that, that our, our not rabbinic but Jewish leadership colleague, Yehuda Kurtzer of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America, has suggested which is a, a distinction between he calls the moral the political and the partisan and to, to to not sort of lump all of our thoughts on an issue that everyone is talking about the partisan winning and losing of the moment but to really concentrate on ourselves our moral grounding and our moral introspection and to think about not just the the, uh, the power politics and the partisan politics of the moment but the but the larger political projects we are in about creating the society that we want to have, that we think flows from our principles and that itself helps to cultivate those qualities in people and uh, which sometimes help, you know, we want to enlarge that picture. So I want to really start by talking a little bit of who, who one might be as a Jew going into the political discussions around reproductive rights and so I do want to say that we, you know, we, we three have identified ourselves as religious Jews in different ways, but but not everybody who's Jewish is. And the things that are meaningful to us in terms of the principles around around the person who is pregnant and around the fetus are meaningful to us and each in the way that we that we have said because of what we think Judaism is teaching us and Torah is teaching us, but it, it may be that that's not the case for you, that the religious outlook is not the source, actually, of your of your view. And it's really important to be clear about that. When your position, whatever it is, is it because you are Jewish? Is it because you're a religious person? Is it because you're looking out for people who are who are Jewish and, and trying to be guided by religion? Or, or is it out of some other thing? Uh, because I don't think we can go into conversations as Jews without kind of clarifying who we are, and to ourselves first, and then to the people that that we are talking. The terms, you know, Leora talked about the fact that, that Judaism doesn't start with rights, but with responsibilities, with mitzvah. And the very terms pro-life and pro-choice, they were not, if, we, if it was up to us and we were even structuring this debate, we wouldn't choose those as the, the way to describe. Those are terms that are chosen for, for good reasons to motivate people, but, but in some sense, I hope we are all pro-life and we are all pro-choice and Judaism is about trying to weigh those things and interpret them and then weigh them when they are in conflict. And, but at the same, so I think it's as, at least speaking as a religious Jew, walking into a situation where other people are defining pro-life and pro-choice, it's an opportunity for me to go in and say, well, this is the definition that I am bringing. Partly so that people just hear a different thing and partly so that people are aware that Jews in the community might not see the issues the same way. And partly because in a practical sense, it might be that, it, this opens up, that this opens up a bridge. It might not, it doesn't always. I will often go out to coffee with legislators who are, by their own definition, identity conservative Christians, and say, well, let me tell you what it looks like to me as a Jew. Or I will talk to somebody who's a legislator in New Hampshire who is Jewish and say, uh, but who doesn't identify as a religious Jew, and say, well, let me tell you what what, what a Jewish community or a Jewish person might, might think about that. And they're always super interested. And sometimes people who are who are Christians by very strong self-identification in politics really do want to know what another perspective is. And it's important also that they hear. And sometimes our, our legislators in New Hampshire just want to hear a diversity of religious views, whether it confirms what they've heard from other religious groups or not, just as part of their, their sense of responsibility. And, and people are usually grateful. At the same time, a, a Jew who is active in pro-choice politics, and, and I think a Jew who is active in pro-life politics, has a certain uncomfortable responsibility to not sort of sign over our whole, our whole identity and our whole morality to the particular group, even if we agree overall with what they're trying to do right now. Sometimes pro-choice groups say that all religious people or all right-wing religious people are anti-woman or they're anti, you know, just painted with all one brush. And we know that this is not the case, and sometimes our job is to is to point that out, that it's not helpful and it's not good for the, the polity as a whole. We don't have to do that in order to advance the cause. I think that uh, there's a responsibility for people who are religious and in a pro-life uh, posture to, to say something when, as, for instance, was said in our legislature at a hearing uh, this term, uh, somebody testified that the most dangerous place in America is a woman's womb, is inside a woman's womb. And that kind of, obviously, you know misogynistic and, I think, uh, violent and very troubling statements. Somebody religious has to be accountable to, 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 to what people say in those kinds of groups as well. But I think that there is a, an opportunity for us as Jews sometimes just to, to say something different in a different way and maybe to, to open up or, or, or shake up the, the conversation. Or not, and at least then people have heard the kinds of things that, that we have. I think that there is an ethic of being involved in social debate, and I, I have a whole other thing which you won't hear today, but about this example. We we often talk about the debates, what is called machlok <laughs> at l'shem shamayim, deeply held dispute that is being carried out for the sake of heaven. The example being the Talmudic debates of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. And we are taught that uh, what characterizes Beit Hillel is not that they are less tenacious about their views, but that they are gracious about understanding the people and the positions of people on the other side and, uh, and are gracious of trying to articulate what it is at the deepest and most important level, who who other people are looking out for, what their principles are, to be able to say that so that to to clarify things for ourselves and so other people know that, that we are listening. I think that the, the other thing I want to say, though, has to do with a, a kind of advocacy. I think it's very important for, for Jews to do, and particularly for religious Jews to do. It is important to stand up for the free exercise of religion, which is guaranteed by the First Amendment of the federal constitution, which applies to the states. And, and really, as we have heard, there are times when, when helping someone or counseling someone toward ending a pregnancy is not only permitted, but is, but is required and And this puts us as rabbis, for instance, if we were in Texas, we might go to jail for offering this advice, not go to jail, but be fined by any person around, ten thousand dollars over and over and over again. That's a violation of of the freedom of religion, of the person struggling with this decision, of any of their advisors. And, and it's not okay for us to not be able to practice our religion based on somebody else's view of, of what the beginning of human life is. And this is something I think we really do as Jews have to say. I hope, I'm sure that at some point these issues will be adjudicated. But, but before they're adjudicated, again in New Hampshire, I think it's important for us to, to, to show up and bring that up as a statement. The issue of the establishment of religion, whether defining life, defining human life and all of the privileges, finding the crime of murder based on fertilization or anything like that is again taking one religious view, it is, and it is primarily a religious view of one segment of Christian America and making that the law. And it's not good for Jews it's not good for Jews even if even if in a particular case you might be a Jew who agrees with that philosophically for, for any reason. It's not good for the law to be based on one religious group's conception of, of difficult questions. And, and I can understand why if you hold that belief very strongly, you would want the law of murder to reflect that. But, but in cases where there's so much controversy, we have to be among the ones standing up for, as a religious minority, to say that the law can't just reflect one particular religious group especially. I don't know that that's technically the establishment of religion but in the in the spirit of it's something we have to articulate and I wanted to to mention something which I was then thinking about and the the quote uh, comes from Rabbi Josh Fagelson of the Institute for Jewish Spirituality citing a, a wonderful political philosopher named Daniel Allen who said that Democratic societies depend on the equitable distribution of sacrifice whereby one group is not asked to give up Its powers or desires longer or more frequently than another. I think it's true generally about democracy And I think it's true about religious groups in a democracy that the bargain we make to live here as religious people Is that we don't get to just say God said and that that's the the law, but that we either take turns getting our way around that, or nobody gets to, we get to bring that, but that's not the, the way that things are decided. And, and I think we have to, I, I, I'm comfortable with that part of the bargain. Sometimes I do have to give things up that are, out of my faith that I can't do. I often have to agree that the law should allow things to happen that my own religion is not good with or my sense of that. And as long as everybody does that, I think that's, uh, that's, that's what it means to be part of a, a religious pluralistic democracy. So those are some of the, the principles that I think might, might guide us and we might bring as we approach. And I think it's very positive, especially in New Hampshire, to go to your local representatives and just say, I, I have some thoughts about this. And I'd like to, to just tell you where, where we're at.
1: So we'll take questions either via chat or for the people that are here in person. Does anybody have any questions they'd like to ask or comments? There's a question online. Some cultures have distinct rituals around miscarriage, but ours does not. How should we encourage creating our own
3: rituals to support those who suffer from such a loss? I I think I, I, I think I mentioned that that we are, you know, it is incumbent upon us to create those rituals. And once again, it's going. They're going to be very individual. They're going to have to respond to the particular loss that the person suffered. And as I said, some will want to say kaddish in that moment. Others will deem it not appropriate but still will recognize as a loss and and so yes. You know, one of the things I love about Judaism is that it that despite biblical times when we talked about justice but we were definitely not democratic. I think today we we are more of a democratic a faith community in that we lack hierarchy, right? It's not that we have to go to some religious figure to get approval to be able to do something. And many times these rituals come right from the individual who has suffered along with, you know, a circle of friends and family. Sometimes they will consult clergy and ask for advice on how to do something, do something. But either way, we absolutely encourage people to ritualize All moments in their lives of loss or grief or pain or suffering. And again, I'm not going to impose upon someone a ritual that may not speak to them. You know, that's different than a funeral for someone who lived a life and had a life in being. And we we sort of know what that ritual is and what, you know, what prayers are meant to offer comfort. But in these situations that are, not what what the what a funeral is really meant for that is where we do have to get creative and responsive and use things from our tradition and use things from even outside our tradition if it, if those feel right for us i have a couple of other questions one person is asking what
1: concretely and by that i think that person means yes or no is jewish law actually towards a, abortion
2: i think i answered this but the answer is it depends on the situation, right? So, you know, it depends on the situation. If there is considered to be danger to the mother, then it's required. And if it's considered to be harmful to the mother in ways other than health wise, then there is room for discretion. There's a lot of room for discretion. That if, you know, if the, if the pregnancy is a threat to the mother's quality of life, then there is a lot of room for discretion there. I want to share a few things. One is, I don't know how many folks are, are aware of how to get an abortion in Israel, but I think it's helpful to know because that is much more informed by Jewish tradition. And it's also very much not perfect. And so basically in Israel since the 1970s, their abortion has been legal. And it's very easy to get an abortion under the following circumstances. Number one, if a woman is younger than 17 or older than 40. Number two, if the pregnancy results from rape, incest, or extramarital relations. Number three, under the possibility that the baby will be born with a physical or mental deformity. And number four, when the continuation of the pregnancy could endanger a woman's life or mental health. And this law allows for certain abortions to be performed all the way up until the 39th week of pregnancy. Now the way that this works is that a person who wants an abortion has to go before a panel of people who debate and decide whether that abortion is acceptable. Um, and so again, if any of these four conditions are made, it's easy, they decide it's fine. But They have to go, the woman has to go before a panel. And I actually, I printed out here a selection from an article that Michal Rauscher just published. She she studies reproductive issues and Judaism and particularly looks at what's going on in Israel. And she's been writing a lot recently, kind of commenting on the current discussion. And she points out that it is easy in Israel to get an abortion. And frankly, anyone can get it. Some people have to lie to get it but they can get it. But there's an assumption that women don't get to make their own decision, that they don't have their own bodily autonomy, right? There's an assumption that the abortion has to be justified and that somebody else has to pass judgment on the justification. Um, And I think it's understandable how Jewish law and tradition kind of brought some people to setting up the system in that way, because as, as, we said before Judaism doesn't really have a framework of rights but it's not it's not the perspective that i think those of us who are speaking today necessarily have and it's not the entirety of the jewish perspective on this issue right i mentioned this idea from the talmud that nobody should be forced to go through a pregnancy and and so it's actually not, this particular approach is not, is not acknowledging bodily autonomy. And so, you know, Michal Rauscher here, she's actually quoting Nitzan Horowitz, who's I think the Minister of Health from Israel, who's been basically speaking out in favor of women having the right to make that choice about their own bodies. And so she's saying, you know, there's an attempt to, a temptation right now to say that restrictions on abortion rights in the United States violate the religious freedom of Jews. That's true to an extent, but a religious argument based on Jewish law and rabbinic texts only goes so far. Those of us who support reproductive health, rights and justice ought to be honest about the connection between that and our rabbinic tradition. I believe in the same bodily autonomy argument that Nitzan Horowitz makes. So again, I'm quoting Michal Rauscher. It may not be an argument rooted in Jewish law, but it is a Jewish argument and it's time to make it. So, I hope that answers the question. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I think that one I'm going to sort of respond to it by and also <laughs> s- sort of say why this makes it important for me. I think for the American law to be to be roomier because uh, uh, on the one hand it seems if you just sort of start from from scratch that as we've said the fetus is not a full person until literally the the head emerges into the world but from that that literal moment which gives from a legal point of view if you if you go from legal definitions a broad a broad uh, possibility of abortion up till that moment which is far you know more expansive than even that a lot of people who i think are, are pro-choice in the in the general public think and, and i think in uh, you know that is that is one piece of jewish law at the same time i think that you find that there are some authorities in uh, in some Jewish religious communities who are very uncomfortable with abortion up to that line. And I was reading a, a paper by Rev. Aaron Lichtenstein, Zichron Livra, who was a, tr- a, a great figure in the modern, really left-wing orthodox community in Israel and, you know, in the, the modern era, and the paper dates, I think, to the 90s, in which he made a, a huge case for why for why he thought, actually, the law of murder should apply to abortion and then said but it's really up to the woman and the rabbi to make this decision and the rabbi could think of any number of of these other considerations that we have talked about and so what is jewish law on the one hand there's jewish law but jewish law is always applied jewish law is always is always decided in a way, case by case. And now, what Leora is saying is that this still doesn't put the in this conception of Jewish law does not put the woman exactly in the in the driver's seat, where where I think we think or you know, the person who is pregnant who can bear or not bear a child. And and that's something that that I frankly myself I feel that I'm still trying to work out. The other thing is that you know the I don't think that this means that abortions for the purpose of Sex selection or characters of those selections—that strikes me as not, as not very Jewish—and and I don't frankly know whether there's been uh, rulings issued about that and and where these things kind of cross-cut with each other. Uh, but I think that I want the the possibility of any person operating in a Jewish law framework to use the flexibility that is built into Jewish law, and I certainly want the law of my of my American civil law to give room for that to to happen. That's where I think those decisions ought to be made.
1: So another question, I mean, I think we, we have covered this a little bit, but how can we as Jews lift up our voices to promote reproductive justice in our state? So what
3: specifically can we do as Jews? Can I respond to that? Yeah. I'll tell a little story. Being the rabbi in Concord, I am very frequently in the state legislative building, testifying in favor against various bills that come our way. And there was a particular day that I was down at the State House, and I was testifying, and I don't even remember what the bill was, and there was a little bit of a break, it was lunchtime, and I was walking around, and I saw that there was a particular room in which there was a hearing on a bill related to abortion, and in particularly, it would um, impose some limitations. And again, I honestly don't remember how long ago it was or what the bill was. The bill was ultimately decided and expedient to legislate and it just sort of died in committee. But I had an opportunity to enter into the room where there was a legislator from the committee just sort of sitting and biding time. And we engaged in some conversation and I said to him, you know, I'm a rabbi and you may not have heard this in the testimony, but in our religious tradition, there are, there are times in which abortion is actually mandated, and so if the legislator is to if the legislature is to enact any legislation that the governor signs restricting access to abortion, it potentially violates um, the establishment clause and our ability to practice our faith. And he looked at me like I was from another planet. You know, he had only ever heard from either Roman Catholics or more evangelical Christians on life beginning at conception and terminating a pregnancy amounting to murder. And he asked me if I could stay and testify to that effect, and unfortunately I couldn't because I was scheduled to testify on whatever the other bill was. In retrospect, I obviously should have scratched myself off of the other one and stayed for this one. But I think those are the kinds of things that when this person asks, how as Jews do we lift up our voices, I'm not suggesting you all run to Concord and just kind of go up and down the halls and seeing if there's any abortion legislation being discussed. But we we follow. We try to know what legislation is out there. We take it upon ourselves. It's really easy to go into the State House or wherever there's a committee hearing and literally just write your name down. Yes, I want to testify. And they'll call on you. And you can even pass a note that says, oh, I have to leave in 15 minutes, and they'll bring you up to the top, and they'll have you come and testify. It's very, very easy. So if you feel passionate, and you know that there is legislation pending, take that opportunity. And and I think we you know from the clergy point of view in New Hampshire, sorry to, to to not include you here. We, you know, we try to organize our communities, we try to bring people together on things. And I think we have a responsibility as well to let people know when there is legislation out there that is being that is in, in, in the legislature to, to uh, we've gotta let everybody know and, and encourage people to come up. And uh, and to put your name down and testify, and I think the more and more people, Jews who go in and say, you know, this is against my religion, this is violation of the establishment clause, this is this, you know, we believe that life begins at birth, we, you know, that there's life and potential life. That the legislature, I think, will be overwhelmed with hearing that religious perspective that they have really never before them.
0: Yeah, and 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 I do want to say, you know, as I went back to, I think there is, you know, you have to know what you. What you're saying is you, and you know if that, if a religious point of view from Judaism is in fact the one that you believe enough to say. But it's also perhaps important to say that there are there are Jews. And there are, and you're looking out for the ability of your rabbi to be able to to advise people freely, you know, if you think that that's something that, that you want to say. But generally, I think our, our legislators are, are intrigued, and it's difficult sometimes to, to identify oneself as a Jew in the political community if it's not what you've done before. But it can also be very gratifying and, 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 and interesting. You know, people are very intrigued. We're still sometimes very exotic, depending on what part of the, the state or what neighborhood of the town.
1: We have a, a couple more questions in the chat, but did anybody who's here in person wanna ask a question? I'll repeat your question. Why are we not saying this is a religious issue? Yeah, why hasn't that come up Yeah, I mean, there, I, you know, and, and, and I think some of the rabbis can speak to this. There are faith groups, several of them, That have spoken and and raised their voices about pro-choice and reproductive justice. I mean, there there are quite a number. You know, I did some research on this. There are quite a number of groups that are doing just that.
0: Yeah, certainly that's been briefed. The 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 Dobbs case right now has been you know well briefed by the Jewish reproductive choice groups around around exactly these issues. That why why it's not more high profile, I certainly can't say.
1: Anybody else
3: wanna, did you
2: wanna comment? Yeah. Well, I was just gonna mention that the National Council on Jewish Women has been particularly vocal lately about this issue.
3: As well as the Religious Action Center for Reform Judaism, this is one of their top priorities. They are a lob, They're a, essentially a Jewish lobbying group in Washington, D.C., so they're on the hill all the time. So I'd just like to follow up on the question about the panel in Israel. Who's on the panel? Is, are there men on this panel? And I'm curious. What?
2: Yeah, I, I, I think there's always at least one woman on it. I think it's a combination. I think there's always a rabbi and then all, also medical and mental health professionals. I, I don't have the specific details written down. Actually, if you want to read more about that, uh, Lilith magazine has multiple times published some things about this.
1: Yeah. It, it seems like humiliating to have to go through a panel
2: to discuss this. Right, so it's very complicated. But on the one hand, if you need an abortion, you can get it. On the other hand, you have to go through a panel. So it's very, I, I think it's a good illustration again of the difference in the type of conversation between here and there, right? Nobody's asking there if an abortion is legal. It's just about the process to get it. So it's different.
1: And that would be, that's they have to go to a panel if the state is paying for it. There are other ways to get an abortion.
2: I'm not sure that they're legal, but they are safe. The other ways to get it as opposed to what we might be worried about here.
1: And so someone asked a question, how can we best convey that as Jews we are both pro-life and pro-choice? And I guess I would add to that, I feel like we need to come up with better terminology, <laughs> like reproductive justice, or you know, I don't know what, what you have to say about what pro-life really means and what pro-choice really means. Is anybody?
2: I certainly think as Jews we're pro-life. Yeah, I would fully agree with that. We
3: are pro-life. It is not as though the term that we define life beginning at, at conception, and 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 I think that's what the where the misunderstanding comes in, that if you say you are pro-life, it generally means in the American political arena that you are pro defining life from the moment of conception. Judaism doesn't. Judaism is very pro-life. you know, choose life. I mean, think about what we the, the, so much of what we talk about in our faith and our tradition, right? So it is, I think for us, it it is incumbent upon us to to add to the the discourse the fact that not all people define life and the beginning of life at the same time. and if you, take that out of the definition then you see that Jews are extremely pro life if you if you remove that life beginning at conception idea
0: the there are i don't know a dozen Jewish clergy or so in the state give give or take at any given time and we are Diverse and not as diverse as there could be in every as in Massachusetts, let's say. But we actually don't, as a group, get involved uh, politically in our own voice as the Jewish Clergy Association of New Hampshire. You've probably never heard of the Jewish Clergy Association of New Hampshire. But really, one of the, one of the few times that we have actually universally was around the around capital punishment, and we were part of the coalition, which also involved the the Catholic diocese. and. And others and as as ourselves collectively about that, which is certainly a life life issue and also a bridge building issue because I think the Catholic Church in that sense is pro life around those two issues in a in a consistent way, the way that they would say it. I, I think that, so I wanna I want to pat myself on the head or whatever, recommend something that I wrote that I think is actually one of my favorite things I've ever written, which you could find online. It's called Jewish, liberal, and conservative. And one of the things I, that, I, that I argued for is that some of these big terms, I actually was thinking about liberty and equality more, but I think it could apply to life and choice, is that, is that as Jews, we really ought to be giving commentary on these, not only in reaction to to what other people say, but on our own terms, and then also in reaction, both to the uh, and and in, in reaction to the groups we're sympathetic with, we have, we have a lot to say about these and we should, you know, as, as we have been saying, we should claim them in our own, in our own way. And we can't, you know, that's a different project than advocating specifically issue by issue. But, and we should also just talk among ourselves about what we think life means and what we think choice means in our lives in America, what we think these terms are, are all about, autonomy.
3: I want to also mention that it is unfair to Christians to lump them all in one group as being, uh, believing that life begins at the moment of conception and that a woman should not have the right to choose to terminate her pregnancy. That is certainly the view of Roman Catholicism and a lot of the evangelical words, worlds, but in the liberal Protestant community, you're really talking about a view that, especially as, as Rabbi John really emphasized on, rights and autonomy of women and really they are our allies on this and the amicus brief was not just from or there are many amica briefs that were submitted in the in the case. So we know that there's there's more than just the Jews on uh, on that perspective.
2: Can I just add to that there was a there's an article that I think it was actually from several years ago but you know it was sent out anew in the in an email from the forward about uh someone was talking about his own experience as a teenager of helping a friend get an abortion that was illegal at the time in chicago and they did it by connecting to a group of clergy who provided referrals to people seeking abortions and that group of clergy was protestant ministers and rabbis i don't know
1: if these are so much questions as
2: comments Someone said,
1: I am very concerned about the, quote, panel. I guess he's referring to the panel in Israel, deciding about women's health instead of women, women having control over their own bodies. The, the woman should be the decider. Failing that, I'd feel a lot more comfortable with the three rabbis on our Zoom today <laughs> making the woman's decision <laughs> than I'd feel about the chief rabbi in Israel who won't let women pray at the Western Wall. Okay, that, that's a topic for, you know, I think we could have another discussion there about that. And I think it's the same person said, even among Catholics, Joe Biden is Catholic, and he supports a woman's right to choose.
3: There is uh, actually an, a group that was honored a few years, a number of years ago in Concord, I don't remember, by, uh, I think by NARAL, and it, they were Catholics for choice. And the president of the organization came to Concord and spoke. There are many, many, many Roman Catholics who, even if they themselves would never make the decision, they are pro, pro-choice because they agree that it is not up to the government to decide that people should be left to make the, their own decision. You know, I find it fascinating about the panels that you mentioned, they came into being in the 1970s. And of course, Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. And it seems almost like we had two countries wrestling with this issue, and as, I think really reflective of the the countries themselves to have won a US Supreme Court decision, because that is ultimately how we make decisions here, and Israel coming to a very different way, but attempting to really come to the same conclusion, or even more liberal than that. And just really, I mean, it's it's. It is offensive that a woman doesn't get to make the decision on her own and she has to go before this panel, but it almost seems like the panel becomes almost pro forma. Like you just sorta, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this and this, and there's like a check and nod their head and say, okay. And I think that in some ways, as, as humiliating as it may be, it is meant to have some accountability in order to just then say, yes, go ahead and, and do this. And I would hope that there will be reconsideration. And there, there are a number of things that having to do with reproduction have become humiliating for women, especially in a halachic world and especially in Israel. And we have seen, especially in Haredi communities, growing roles of women to counsel and advise other women and, and taking it out of the stream of it coming only from male rabbis, who really have no idea what women go through with reproductive and issues. So let's hope and pray that this is another issue that will eventually move into uh, that kind of a realm as well, that maybe the, Israel will want to maintain a panel, but maybe it'll be all women, So that it, or all people who are capable of being pregnant, so that's who you get to talk to.
1: OK, I don't see any more questions on the chat. Anybody else who's present? Yeah. yeah, so we'll... Thank
3: you. Okay. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Yes, really.
0: Thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, you. Yeah. thank you for listening. If you're interested in more programs like these, visit tbanashua.org or to get on our contact list, email programs at